Well, good morning again, church. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. I did want to mention just a couple more things. This past weekend, we had uh, just a great date night here at the church, and we had a couple great speakers. And something we were doing at our date night, whether or not you had a chance to come, is we're kicking off a new ministry called Marriage Mentors. And so if uh, you and your marriage would be like, I I'd love to come alongside of another uh, couple and uh, um, be discipled by them, what that looks like, because we're a church about making disciples who know God and make him known, uh, you can sign up on a connection card, let the office know, and we'd love to chat more about that with you. We also want you to save the date on November 12th. Uh, for any new folks around the church, we're going to have pizza with the pastors. And so we'll have pastors and elders that you can eat pizza with. We're going to have a sign up on the back. I don't know if it's out there yet, but we'll get it out there soon. But you are more than welcome to come to that. And so let me uh, start us in prayer as we turn to the word in worship. Father, we are just so grateful to worship you, to declare that you are our God. You are the great I am. We look to you for all things. Father, thank you for Jesus, our Savior and Lord. As we transition now uh, to your word, we pray that you prepare our hearts and minds, what you have for us, what we know not teach us, what we have not give us, and who we are not in Christ, we ask that you'd make us, and we ask it all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, written on the tombstone of the author of the beloved hymn, Amazing Grace, are these words. John Newton, clerk, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, preserved restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. You know, when you hear a testimony like that written on a tombstone of a man like John Newton, you just have to take time to consider the kind of transformation that Jesus can bring to any life, no matter how broken or lost in sin we may find ourselves. A testimony like that reminds us of the words that were penned by John Newton, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. This morning, I want to take some time with you to remind us of the one true gospel. And I'd like to invite you to the letter of Galatians, chapter 1, as we begin a new series through this letter. We're going to be in the first 10 verses together in our text. As we consider how Paul, as we're going to see him writing, introduces, defines, and defends the true gospel of Jesus Christ. I've entitled this morning's message, No Other Gospel. Uh, Paul is the author, and I'd just like to give you just some introductory notes. He's writing to churches throughout the region of Galatia. And as he writes to them, he had actually planted many of these churches during his first missionary journeys. And so these churches are very near and dear to his heart. But since his last visit and since his last interaction with them, false teachers have come into the church and they have troubled the church. They have taught uh, not only by attacking the authority and apostleship of the Apostle Paul, but they've also been um, teaching and attacking against the uh, truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so these individuals who could be referred to as Judaizers, these false teachers, uh, they were not denying that faith in Jesus was important. 
They were simply denying that faith in Jesus was enough. And they were basically saying, if you were a Gentile and you were to become a Christian, not only did you have to trust in Jesus and place your faith in him, but you also needed to become a Jew. You needed to be circumcised. You needed to walk in obedience to the law. And Paul writes this letter, and you can almost sense the tenseness within the, the, the way that Paul writes as we're going to read it this morning as his apostleship is being attacked and the true gospel of Jesus is being attacked. And he reminds the readers as we'll be reminded today that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and that there is no other gospel. As we consider, what are we reminded about the true gospel of Jesus Christ? Would you stand in honor of the reading of the word? Galatians chapter 1 will be in the first 10 verses together. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. For I do not, for I, for do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. The word of the Lord, you all may be seated this morning in the presence of God together. We come together and are reminded of the one true gospel. What are we reminded about it? What Paul is going to do in our verses together is he's going to introduce the truth of the gospel in 1 to 2. And then he's going to define the gospel, as we're going to see in verses 3 to 5, and then defend it in verses 6 to 10. What are we reminded about the gospel? In the first five verses, it's the greeting of the letter. And in this greeting, we get to hear not just about the messenger, Paul, who is an apostle, who's been sent to declare the good news of the gospel, but also the message of the messenger that he declares the one true gospel summed up in the greeting and the blessing described in verses 3 to 5. But we begin this morning with the messenger. The author is named first. It says, Paul, an apostle. You know, when we write letters today, often we begin with the person we're writing to. We say, dear so-and-so. Then we end the letter by signing it sincerely, and then we write our name there. The pattern when it came to these New Testament letters in that day and that time, and also the New Testament epistles, is you begin by describing yourself as the author. And the author of this letter is the Apostle Paul. Now, Paul, you are, many of us are familiar with Paul because he's written the majority of the New Testament, but when we're first introduced to Paul in the book of Acts, he's not a friend of the church, nor is he a friend of Christ. Rather, he is a persecutor of the church and therefore a persecutor of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And so Paul is on his way to Damascus after he's been persecuting Christians all throughout Jerusalem, heading to Damascus to do the same. And Jesus Christ, the risen Savior and Lord, confronts him on the way. When you think about what Paul has done, as he has put terror in the minds and hearts of these Christians, you would expect possibly even those Christians back then, if the Lord Jesus is going to confront Paul, he's going to judge Paul. He's going to send lightning bolts down from heaven to consume this man because certainly Paul as a persecutor of the church was deserving of the wrath and judgment of God. But instead of giving Paul what he deserved, God gave him what he did not deserve and Paul became a recipient of God's amazing grace. And not only was Paul forgiven on the road to Damascus, he was also commissioned In Acts chapter 9, verses 15 to 16, we get to read about his commission as given from the Lord Jesus to Ananias. He is told this, but the Lord said to him, Ananias, about Paul, go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Paul is told you're going to suffer greatly for the cause of Christ. You're going to preach before Jews and Gentiles and kings the true gospel message of Christ. And from the time that Paul was converted on the road to Damascus to his imprisonment in Rome, about 30 years have passed. And he has gone through three missionary journeys that we read about in the book of Acts as he literally takes the gospel to the ends of the known Roman world at that time. And the first missionary journey that Paul had gone on was the one where he began to preach and proclaim the gospel throughout the region of Galatia. He was the one who had planted many of these churches that he's now writing to concerning the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what you need to know about this is that Paul, when it comes to these churches, they are near and dear to his heart. He's he's been almost like a father in in the faith to them. And so he cares about them. He loves them. And he desires for them to know Christ and the true gospel and to live out what he's what 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 he's shared with them this morning i'd like you to consider for a moment churches that you've been a part of in the past maybe a few of us this is our only church we've ever been a part of but through over the years there have been different churches you've been a part of and my prayer is even though you had may have had bad experiences and some better experiences in others that that church has a unique place in your heart I think of the church I grew up in and the unique place that that church had in my heart, the the place where I received faith in Jesus as my Savior and Lord. You think of churches that you've ministered to, and your prayer and your desire is that that would be a church that was healthy, that's following after the Lord Jesus Christ. I think of churches that I've had the opportunity to to serve in as an intern or as a pastor, and I think back and, and wonder, I pray, Lord, that those churches are doing well. Paul had planted these churches. And they are near and dear to his heart. And so Paul is the author, and he identifies himself that way. And then he describes himself as an apostle. Now, in other letters that he writes throughout the New Testament, he calls himself an apostle. But I want you to know he's not just identifying himself for the sake of context. He is defending his authority as an apostle because these false teachers were attacking his apostleship and his authority to preach and proclaim the gospel. That's why he says, an apostle not from men nor through man, not not through the agency of man, 
Not a, a group of men didn't come together and say, okay, Paul, I think he's going to be an apostle. He seems to have the qualifications. We're going to set him apart accordingly. No, Paul was called directly by the Lord Jesus Christ himself to be an apostle. But through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. So we're reminded that Paul is an apostle. Now, when we're talking about an apostle in the New Testament sense, we're talking about individuals who had unique qualifications. And as we walk through these qualifications, I want you to know that there are no modern-day apostles as in the New Testament sense. And the reason why is you're going to see in a moment. Number one, because to be a, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, you had to be a witness, an eyewitness to the resurrected Christ. Let me read to you that in 1 Corinthians 9.1. Paul says this, Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? In Acts chapter 9, verses 3 to 6, as we were talking about Paul's conversion experience on the road to Damascus, the resurrected Savior appears to him. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You mess with the church, you mess with Christ. And he said, who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. <laughs> Listen, Paul wanted to, he was, he, he was zealous about purifying or maintaining the purity of Judaism so much so he was willing to persecute this sect within Judaism that was proclaiming a man who had died and then rose again and he didn't believe he was alive and now the living Christ confronts him. What a moment. Verse 6, so he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And the Lord said to him, arise and go into the city and you will be told what to do. What is he told by Ananias? Go, you will suffer greatly for my name's sake. You will preach before Jews and Gentiles and kings and proclaim the gospel literally to the ends of the known Roman world at that time. He was an apostle because he was an eyewitness of the resurrected Savior. Secondly, to be an apostle meant that you were attested to by miracle signs and wonder, miraculous signs and wonder. 2 Corinthians 12, 12 says, Truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. In Acts chapter 14, verse 3, as Paul is heading through the region of Galatia, you know, going to, to, to different cities, Derba and Lystra and Iconium. They're not just pre he's not just preaching the gospel, but doing miraculous signs and wonders. It says, therefore, they stayed there a long time, Acts 14.3. And this is speaking of Iconium. Speaking boldly in the Lord, who is bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. And so, as an apostle, you had to be an eyewitness to the resurrected Savior. You had to be attested to by miraculous signs and wonders. And thirdly, you had to be called by Jesus Christ himself. You know, there were 12 disciples, and therefore 12 apostles, if you recall. But one of the, the, the disciples or apostles was Judas, who strayed, and so they needed to replace him. And in Acts chapter 1, when they were discerning who they were to choose, they were to find one who was chosen by Jesus Christ. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 21, let me read to you how they went about choosing Matthias, who would replace Judas. Verse 21 of chapter 1 of Acts says this, Therefore of these men who have accompanied us all the time, 
that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And they proposed to Joseph called Barsabas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen um, to take part in the ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. In other words, Jesus, who have you chosen? And they cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered among the eleven apostles. What does this tell us? Why is this relevant to us? Well, because we're reminded that our faith is not blind. Our faith is grounded in the reality of a historical event that of a man by the name of Jesus who came from heaven to earth, fully God and fully man, born in a manger, who died on a cross, and after being in the grave three days, rose again in newness of life, and we have eyewitness accounts recorded by the apostles or those closely associated with them throughout the 27 New Testament books of the Bible. Isn't that incredible? And so Paul's apostleship and Paul's authority matters because he has been appointed by the Lord Jesus Christ, attested to by miracle signs and wonders, chosen as an eyewitness of the resurrected Savior and Lord to give us the truth of the gospel message of Christ. And so Paul, he's described as... An apostle, he identifies as the author, and then he's described as one who is writing on behalf of the brethren to the churches throughout the region of Galatia. And Paul, when he thinks about these churches, they have a unique place in his heart. So that's the messenger. Uh, now that we know the messenger, Paul's the author. He's defending his apostleship. Now let's talk about the message of the gospel. And uh, we're still in the greeting, right? We're talking about the author, we're talking about the recipients, and now it's the blessing because that's how you greet one another in a letter. But I want you to know that the message of the gospel of Christ is summed up within this greeting. And what Paul does in this introductory five verses is introduce us to the very gospel that he's going to defend in the rest of the letter, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And he begins with a core part of what the truth of the gospel is, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. I want to ask the question in light of these verses three to five, what's so good about the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Number one, if you've trusted in Jesus as your Savior and Lord, you and I are recipients of his grace. We're recipients of his grace that some would describe as amazing grace. When we're talking about grace, we're talking about the unmerited favor of God, the generous favor of God lavished upon guilty sinners and needy saints. And by his grace, not only does he save us, but he enables us to live out the Christian life that he's called us to. The, the verse in scripture that always we need to call to mind, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And so grace is the unmerited favor of God. We can't add to it. We can't take away from it. We're saved by God's grace. 
But then you go further to verse 10. Not only does he give his grace to save us, he gives us his grace to enable us to live out the Christian life, for we are his workmanship. In the Greek there, it's his masterpiece. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. By grace we have been saved unto good works, and we are his masterpieces. So when people see the good deeds we do, they don't give us glory. They give all glory, honor, and praise to God who is working in and through us, who prepared us beforehand for the good that we would do. This morning, what's so good about the pure gospel of Jesus Christ? We are recipients of his amazing, amazing grace. Secondly, we are recipients of his peace. Grace is the unmerited favor of God lavished upon guilty sinners. And when we are saved by grace through faith, the result is peace with God. This morning, we're reminded that according to Romans 3.23, we've all sinned. We've all missed the mark. We've all fallen short of God's standard. We're born with a sin nature inherited from Adam. and, And so because of our sin nature... We are not friends with God. We are enemies of God. But what we're reminded through the finished work of Christ on the cross, God reconciles us back to himself through Jesus, our Savior and our Lord. Ephesians 2 sums that up well, verses 1 through 5. And you he made alive who were dead in your trespasses and sins. I want to talk a moment about what it means to be dead. If you've ever been around corpse or a body, you know that that body doesn't move. It cannot move. It cannot do anything. It's dead. If you were to go to a grave site, a cemetery, and you were to all of a sudden see, perhaps out of one of those grave sites, a hand start to put their hand out, you would say, that person is not dead. And that's very concerning. The Bible tells us that we are dead in our trespasses. We can't do anything to save ourselves. We can't do anything to reach up to the Lord. But the text says, you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sin. He resurrected us to life. He's the one who gives us spiritual life in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath. That's a sad reality that we read just as the others, but then aren't you grateful for the but God moment? And the text goes on to say, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in sins and trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. By grace you have been saved. Romans 5, 1 through 2 says this, therefore, having justified by faith, But having been justified by faith, declared righteous, a right standing before God, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God. We've been reconciled to him. We're in a right standing before God. 
When we come before the Lord, we don't have to fear because we have been made right and we have received the righteousness of Christ through whom also we have access by faith in this grace which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. What's so good about the good news of the gospel? You and I are recipients of his unmerited favor, his grace, and we are recipients of peace, peace with a holy, righteous, perfect God. But folks, we're not just talking about peace with God. We're peace, talking about the peace of God. We live in a world that is just chaotic. Turn on the news. You'll see everything that can cause you anxiety. There's plenty of things to worry about in the world, in our lives, in our family, in our church. There's plenty of things that should cause us anxiety. But as a recipient of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we don't just enjoy peace with God. We have the peace of God that transcends all understanding. In John 14, 27, as Jesus is preparing to leave And his disciples are troubled because of that. He reminds them of this. Peace I leave with you. Peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled. Neither let it be afraid. What kind of peace does God give us? He gives us the peace of his Holy Spirit that lives and resides within us. That's good news. That's amazing grace and a result of it. Philippians 4, 6 through 7, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God and the peace of God. This is the promise which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ. Is your heart troubled, weary, heavy laden? Come and find rest in the Lord Jesus Christ. Experience the peace that he offers with God through his son and the peace of God that we receive in him. And so what's so good about the good news of the gospel? We are recipients of his grace. We are recipients of his peace. Thirdly, this morning, we are recipients and beneficiaries of the finished work of Christ on the cross applied on our behalf. Let me read to you again verse 3. It says, Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who what? Who gave himself for our sins. What did Jesus do for us? He died for us. When it says he died for us, he didn't just die. He came from heaven to earth, went to a cross, To die a sinner's death was humiliated on that cross, beaten and bloodied, and he died for you and me. He died voluntarily. He died as our substitute. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us, he, speaking of God the Father, made him, speaking of God the Son, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. God, that is good news. That's exciting. That's what I need to be reminded about often, that Jesus Christ died for me. He died for my sins. It's a wonderful, exciting reality when you realize that the gospel is not just the good news of Jesus who who offers salvation to the whole world, but offers salvation to you. And you realize just how far from God you are because of your sin. How broken you are because of your sin. And then you realize Jesus died for me. What a wonderful moment where you receive the joy of your salvation. 
where you, like a financial account, your spiritual account is in debt towards the living God. But we transfer our debt to the Lord Jesus Christ when we trust in him as our Savior and Lord. And he declares to Telestai, it is finished, paid in full. All your sins, past, present, and future, if you trusted in Christ as your Savior and Lord, have been dealt with at the cross, and they are paid in full. And you know another transaction takes place. He transfers to our account, even though we don't deserve it, righteousness. That's what justification means. The moment you trust in Jesus as, the sa- as your Savior and Lord is the moment you are justified, declared to be in a right standing before a holy God. We're in the process of sanctification. One day we will be glorified with Christ. But in the, right now, when God sees us, he doesn't see our sin, past, present, and future. He sees the perfect righteousness of Christ. Isn't that good news? This morning, we need to be reminded of that again and again. Not only did he die for our sins, but he also rescued us, delivered us from this present evil age. We're reminded that what Jesus could have done the moment we accepted Christ as Savior and Lord is delivered us out of this world. But the text says he's delivered us from this present evil age. What does that mean? Well, we were once slaves of sin and unrighteousness. But what Christ did is he bought us out of the slave market of sin and delivered us to be free to serve our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. Makes me think of 1 Peter 1.18 to 19 that says, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold. Jesus didn't pay your debt with some silver or gold from creation, from your aimless conduct received by the tradition of your fathers, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. Listen, we've been redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And because we have been redeemed, we have been rescued and delivered from this present evil age, as we read in Ephesians 2, the prince of the power of the air, Satan, who rules and reigns over the value system of the world, we do not live our life in accordance with this world, but in the world to, with the world to come. Christ reigns and rules over our hearts, and because of that, we have been delivered from this present evil age So sin is no longer our master. We have been set free by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And so we were saved by Jesus Christ who died for our sins, who delivered us, rescued us from this present evil age, and who did so according to the will of God the Father. It's all part of God's plan. Not just what Christ accomplished through his death, burial, and resurrection, but it's God's plan of salvation for your lost soul and for mine. And no one is too lost. No one is too broken to receive forgiveness that Christ offers in his name. We're told in Genesis, you know, our Bibles would be really short if God did not truly love us. Genesis chapter 3 could just be done right there. God should just wipe out the human race, perhaps start over. But in chapter 3, verse 15, we learn that God already set forth a redemptive plan 
And that plan was from the seed of the woman would come one who would crush the head of the serpent. This is God's plan from the very beginning. Who is that one who will crush the head of the serpent? Jesus Christ, the Lord. When he died on that cross, he defeated sin, death, and Satan and ratified it three days later when he rose in newness of life. And brothers and sisters in Christ, he rules and reigns forever and ever. This is all according to the will of God. When you are at peace with God and you are on the right side of God and you are in right standing with God, that is good news. But if you haven't yet trusted in Christ, it's the motivation to get right before God. And the only way that you can get right is not based on the good deeds that you do. Bible says our good righteous deeds are like filthy rags. They are corrupted by the sin of our lives, the only thing that can save us is the precious blood of Jesus Christ that redeemed us, that bought us out of the slave market of sin. We are greatly blessed. If you are a recipient of his grace, recipient of his peace, and a recipient and a beneficiary of the finished work of Christ on the cross, we are greatly blessed. And that's why Paul ends with the declaration of praise. As he blesses them, grace and peace to you from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. And he talks about how Jesus died for our sins, delivered us from the, 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 delivered us from the evil age we live in. According to the will of the Father, he says, all glory be to God the Father forever and ever. When you hear the good news of the gospel, it should cause you and I as recipients of the good news to stand back in awe and wonder and worship and declare the greatness of our God. Because we had nothing to offer in light of the salvation that we received. We don't get the credit. All glory, honor, and praise goes to our King. In these first five verses in this greeting, Paul introduces and defines the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're introduced to the messenger, the apostle Paul, who's been called to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, the message of the gospel that's all about the grace and peace of God. What is our response? How then shall we live in light of the gospel that's been reminded to us about Jesus by means of grounding our faith in the truth of the gospel? Grounding our faith in the truth of the gospel. Two ways to do that. Number one, ground your faith in the truth of the gospel by responding to it in faith. This morning, if you haven't trusted in Jesus as your Savior and Lord, and you consider texts like Ephesians 2, that we are dead in our sins and trespasses before God can before God comes into our life and resurrects us unto spiritual life in him. If you're here today and, and you hear the good news that Jesus died for you because he loved you. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever should believe in him shouldn't perish but have everlasting life. He loves you. And he wants you to come to him, trust in him, and admit your need for him and say, Jesus, apart from you, I'm deserving of wrath and judgment and eternity without you and your people forever. Secondly, believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be, the one who came from heaven to earth to die on a cross in our place to provide us forgiveness and everlasting life. And then thirdly, confess Jesus 
as your Savior and Lord. Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Don't wait till tomorrow. The day of salvation is <coughs> today. And as you respond in faith, as you ground your faith in the truth of the gospel and respond to it in faith, if you haven't, trusting in Jesus for the first time, if you have trusted in Christ, continue to ground your faith in the truth of the gospel. And be reminded, our faith is not blind. It's grounded in reality of these eyewitnesses who saw the resurrected Savior Lord during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses, and they declared to us the good news of the truth of the gospel. And did you know, if you're a follower of Jesus, not only have you been forgiven, but like the apostle Paul, you've been commissioned. You may have not been commissioned as an apostle, but you've been called in accordance with Matthew 28, 19 to 20, to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we can do that through the local church, church as individuals of the church, Continue to share Jesus with as many people as possible and then invite them to follow Jesus as we get to follow him as well. So ground your faith in the truth of the gospel by responding in faith. Secondly, by responding in gratitude and responding in worship. What does that look like for us? Because, you know, sometimes the gospel, we hear it so often, we, we, we lose the joy of our salvation. We forget what a blessing it is to be saved and, 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 and we aren't always grateful. Well, I, I give us a few things. Number one, meditate on the gospel every day. I don't know about you, but I need to preach it to myself every single day. I'm reminded that, that I'm a sinner saved by grace. I've been provided the Holy Spirit who indwells me to empower me to live out the Christian life. As we said in Ephesians chapter 2, 10, 2 verse 10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. But I need to be reminded of that daily. It's a good place to start. I'm a recipient of his grace. I'm a recipient of his peace. I'm a beneficiary of the finished work of Christ on the cross. I need to remind myself of that day, daily and then respond in worship. Thank you, Jesus. You are so good to me. And it should, over time, cause us to love God more and more. Secondly, by means of making the Sunday gatherings or the gathering of God's people a priority. You know, this morning, in the same way Paul greeted the churches in Galatia, I had the opportunity to greet you. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. May that be a way that we can greet our brothers and sisters in Christ. Reminding one another that we are recipients of his amazing grace, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so, what are we reminded about the gospel? The, the messenger and the message. And then thirdly, that there is only one true gospel. Paul introduced the gospel by introducing himself as an apostle. He defined the gospel as we are recipients of his grace and peace. Now he defends the gospel. Now as we turn to verse 6, usually if, if you are a student of the word, you'll notice like in most epistles, he'll follow a similar pattern. He'll state the author, his name, he'll describe the recipients, he'll declare a blessing, but then he'll go into prayers and praises for the people. He'll commend the people, but Paul doesn't mess around in this letter. He goes right into a correction. 
And Paul, having worshipped and glorified glory to God forever and ever, now he confronts the churches throughout Galatia. He has a sense of urgency. He loves these churches. He cares for them deeply. And verse 6 says this, but from the, um, verse 6, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ. When Paul says, I marvel, he says, I'm astonished. I'm shocked. After you have received the, the good news of the gospel of grace, which is, which, is, which is only a work of Christ and nothing that you can do, you shouldn't take away from it, you shouldn't add to it, and yet you have turned away from it so soon. Why is Paul shocked? Why is he astonished? R let me remind you, he's a father in the, in the faith to these folks. He's helped plant many of the churches. He's sent letters. He's visited. He's sent folks to visit them. He cares deeply for this church. You can maybe think this morning of a parent who has a prodigal child. And perhaps that parent can understand the heart of Paul in this moment. When you raise a child in the church, when you instruct them in the truth of the word, share the good news of the gospel of grace with them, and they seem to come to faith in Jesus, trust in him as their savior and their Lord. And then somewhere along the line, they turn from the Lord. You can feel the heart of Paul that breaks for these churches. Maybe you're here today and you have discipled a fellow brother or sister in Christ. You've walked alongside of them through good times and bad. You cried with them. You helped bear their burdens. And, and you walked them through, through difficult times in life and difficult uh, texts of Scripture. And, and you've got through the other side. But somewhere along the way, they turn their back on the gospel. They turn their back on God. And your heart breaks for that person. That's Paul who says, I am astonished. I marvel. I am shocked that you have turned so quickly. When it says you have turned, what it literally means is to transfer your allegiance from one person to another. And what he says here is you have turned your back on God. I want you to look carefully at the text. It says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon, not just from the gospel of grace, but from him who called you in the grace of Christ. Any departure from the true gospel of Jesus Christ is a departure from God, is a departure from the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not just talking theoretically here. We're not just talking theologically here or doctrinally here. When you turn your back on the gospel message of Christ, the gospel of grace, you are turning your back on God, on the one who called you, it says here, who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. He'll continue on and tell you, listen, this is no gospel at all. In verse 7, which is not another, it's a perversion, uh, it's, a, it's a mutilation, it's a twisting of the truth, it's a distortion of the truth. But he says, I'm shocked. He confronts them that you have turned so soon, so Quickly, I think if there's one thing we can take away from that text is the need for discipleship. When a believer in Christ 
comes to faith in Jesus as their Savior and Lord, there are many distractions, many things that can lead them astray. And it's a good thing as you come to faith in Jesus to find a fellow brother or sister in, the, in Christ in the church or that you know who can come alongside of you and walk you through the fundamentals of the faith. We've got a class that's going on on Sunday mornings called the Fundamentals of the Faith, led by Jim Green, and he takes time to lead us through those fundamental principles of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, and those are good things to have in our life to be discipled. So he confronts the church, then he calls out the false teachers. I want you to know that as Paul is going to continue to write, this is not going to win him a lot of praises. He's putting himself in a difficult position because in verse 10 we're going to see he's not interested in pleasing man, he's interested in pleasing God. We're reminded, he says, I am a bondservant, a slave of Jesus Christ. I wouldn't be telling you this if I wasn't a slave of Jesus Christ. The easy way out would be perhaps to not even have this conversation. And the text goes on to say, but there are some who trouble you. These false teachers, Judaizers, are bringing in false teaching, and they're just twisting the truth. So they're saying, yes, faith in Jesus is important. We believe that too. We proclaim the gospel, even though it's a perversion and a distortion of it. We believe faith in Jesus is important, but they say faith in Jesus is not enough. It's not sufficient. I don't know if you've ever had a conversation with someone who claims to be a follower of Christ. They may even come to your door and tell you that they are followers of Jesus Christ. They even call themselves Christians, but they do not preach the gospel of grace. They say, yes, faith in Jesus is important, but it's not enough. And they are troubling the church. To trouble means there's turmoil in the church now. People are starting to get confused. Some people are taking sides. Well, Maybe Paul isn't a true apostle like the original 12, minus Judas plus Matthias. Maybe, maybe those false teachers are right. Maybe he is leading us astray. Paul doesn't know what he's talking about. Wasn't he a persecutor of the church from the beginning? He is not truly who he says he is. And they're starting to cause factions within the church, trouble within the church, turmoil in the church. And it says, <coughs> and want to pervert the gospel of Jesus Christ, twist it, distort it, add to it, or take away from it. This morning, I'd like to encourage us to beware of anyone who distorts the purity of the one true gospel of grace. That salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Acts 15.1, it told us, similar to what was going on here, and certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. This morning, I'd like to, to share a few ways that you can know that the gospel is being distorted. Whoever denies who Jesus is in the word is distorting the truth of the gospel, because the gospel is all about him. If you lose sight of who Jesus is, you lose sight of the true gospel, if anyone denies the Trinitarian nature of God, you're, you're distorting the gospel. Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity is that the one true God exists eternally as three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. One in essence, distinct in person, equal in glory. Why is that important? Is Jesus God or not? He is God. The Trinitarian nature of God. Anyone who denies the full deity or humanity of Christ is distorting the gospel message of Jesus Christ. 
Anyone who denies the spiritual lostness of humanity and our desperate need for Jesus Christ is distorting the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Anyone who denies the substitutionary atonement and bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is distorting the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as we've been saying throughout this message, anyone who denies that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, takes away from the gospel or adds to it, is distorting the truth of the gospel. And anyone who denies the reality of the promise of Christ's physical return, where he will come back again in glory to rule and reign over all things, is distorting the truth of the gospel. And lastly, anyone who denies the authority and inerrancy of Scripture is ultimately distorting the truth of the gospel. Why? Because we've been given this word, which is described in 2 Timothy 3.16 as Scripture. That's God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Beware of those who may seek to distort the gospel. And so he, he confronts, he calls out these false teachers, and then he counsels the church in this way, and he says this, but even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. The word accursed there is anathema. It literally means to be delivered over to judgment. It's to, ultimately to be damned to an eternity without God and his people forever. And ever. I want you to consider this for a moment because Paul could have responded in a number of different ways. He could have said, okay, in light of these false teachers who have come about, I think what we're going to do moving forward is we're going to have a debate. We're going to set the stage, set the date. I'm going to debate these false teachers in the church. We're going to do it that way. Some, some, he might have done it another way. He might have said, you know, we're going to have some peer-reviewed journals. I'm going to write a peer-reviewed article that is going to be peer-reviewed. They are going to write the same thing, and then we're going to come out to see who's got the best argument. No, Paul basically damns them to hell. He basically says, when you depart from the true gospel of Jesus Christ, let that person be cursed. Let that person be under the curse of God's judgment, eternally separated from God and his people forever. I want you to consider the seriousness of what Paul is talking about here. Why is he so serious about this? Because people's eternity is at stake. This is a question of life and death, whether you and I will spend eternity in heaven or hell. And so Paul deals with the issue seriously. Don't you dare add anything to the gospel, the true gospel message of Jesus Christ. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now, if you were in verse 8, you might think to yourself, I can, I can tell as Paul's writing, he's pretty tense. And so maybe he's a little bit emotional. And so perhaps he, he let that out, and maybe that was a little bit of the flesh that he shared there. But you read the next verse, you, you see, no, this is not just his emotions talking. Verse 9, he goes on to say, As we have said before, and now I say again, if God ever repeats himself in his word, we are to pay close attention. If anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let them be accursed. Paul included himself back in verse 8. He said, if we do that, let us be accursed. If ever Paul should say, I strayed from the truth of the gospel, 
Let me be accursed. This is a reminder, even if your pastor should stray from the truth of the gospel message of Christ, let that man be accursed. Under the curse of God's judgment, because that particular individual is leading the people of God astray. But then it also says an angel from heaven. And so there are some folks, I mean, who are great in terms of rhetoric, who are intellectual, who have PhDs in multiple letters, postdoctoral work behind their names. and So you've got all these, these individuals, and then you've got angels, right, who claim to be an angel from heaven, an angel of light that should appear to you if they should distort, pervert, or manipulate the gospel in any way. Let them be cursed as well, even if they say, I come from God. There are a few religions out there who would claim an angel of light has appeared to them. Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, said the angel of Moroni came and appeared to him and gave him a perverted gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So-called prophet Muhammad, the founder of Islam, would say an angel appeared to him to show him the true path to eternal life. Listen, if even an angel of light should come to you or posing that way and preach any other gospel to you, let that person be accursed, be under the judgment of God. Paul's taking this seriously, and so should we, because our eternity is at stake. And then he concludes in verse 10 by defending what he's saying here, by saying this. Verse 10, he says, For I do not... for." Do I now persuade men or God? It's a very possibility that some people are coming to Paul and saying, Paul's offering you an easy way to to believe in Jesus, and that's enough. You don't have to get circumcised. You don't have to mutilate your body in any way. You don't have to uh, uh, obey the Mosaic law and observe all the days that they are to observe. And perhaps people are saying he's just a people pleaser, giving people an easy way to believe. Paul says, I do... For, I, for do I now persuade men or God? He says, or do I seek to please men for I still? For if I still please men, I would not be a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Paul says this about himself. I am committed to being a slave of Jesus Christ, my Savior and my Lord. This morning, if you have been bought out of the slave market of sin, redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, once a slave of sin and your own flesh and Satan, who's the prince of the power of the air, and you have been delivered with great joy, we can declare, I am a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ, my master. And I serve him. He is the final authority on all matters to which he speaks. And I do not serve man. I serve God. And Paul is basically saying, I am a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning, what's our takeaway? There is one true gospel. There's one true gospel. The true gospel is that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. If you've trusted in Jesus as your Savior and Lord, you have become a recipient of his grace, a recipient of his peace, a beneficiary of the finished work of Christ on the cross. Your sins have been forgiven. You have been redeemed and you have been delivered from the evil world and age that we live in. All according to the will of the Father to the glory of God the Father. First, this morning, we need to know that. We need to know the true gospel of Jesus Christ so that we can tell when there is a 
departure. This morning, if ever someone should say you must add to the good news of the gospel, if, if you're going to be truly saved, you've got to be a member of a church. They're distorting the gospel. Someone says to be truly saved, you've got to partake of communion, attend church regularly, get baptized. Anything that you add to the gospel you are ultimately perverting it and distorting it. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But those who have truly trusted in Jesus as their Savior and Lord will not fail to produce the fruit of godly life. That's Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 that we talked about earlier. So know the true gospel. Secondly, share the true gospel. We're reminded that there is only one way. Jesus said in John 14, verse 6, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. In the pluralistic society that we live in, people hear that, and they get greatly offended that you would even say that. But we're reminded this morning that we are saying that because we love you. And we know that the only way out is through the Lord Jesus Christ, and we want you to take that path. Reminds me of a pastor who is, it's actually a true story written in his book, a pastor who was on a flight and there's a guy sitting next to him and the guy was dressed uh, really well, probably a businessman and he asked the pastor, uh, what do you do for a living? That's always a difficult question to answer as a pastor because that could shut the, question, the, the conversation down right there and he said, well, I'm an author of books and so I write books and the guy said, well, what kind of books do you write? He said, well, Christian books. The man said, well, that's interesting because I used to be a Christian. The pastor then said, well, if you would take a moment and just share with me what changed for you, I'd love to chat with you. And he said this, I could no longer accept the idea that there was only one way to heaven. I can't believe in a God so cruel. He would torture people for eternity just because they did not believe in Jesus. I can't be a follower of an intolerant religion like that. Well, this pastor first said, thank you for sharing and thank you for your honesty. And then he said this, I want you to suppose this plane were to crash. He's on an airplane, so he said, I need to lower my voice a little bit. <laughs> he says, the cabin is filling with smoke. The cabin lights are out and people are groping for a way to exit the burning aircraft. The flight attendant waves her flashlight and says, follow me, there is only one way out of the plane. Would you accuse her of being hateful for trying to persuade you to follow her directions? Would you label her as intolerant because she claimed that there was only way out, one way out of the plane? He said, I continued, her only motivation for insisting that you follow her directions would be her concern for your safety. The only reason she would insist there is only one safe exit out of the plane would be if indeed there was only one way out of the burning jetliner. This morning, I want to ask you the question, do you, you, are you motivated by love enough to tell people there's only one way out and his name is Jesus? The only way that you can be delivered from an eternity without God and his people forever, even though we're deserving of judgment and God's wrath, is to trust in Jesus as our Savior and Lord who's provided grace upon grace upon grace so that we can have peace with God and a right relationship with the one who redeemed us by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Know the truth. 
receive the truth. Accept Jesus as your Savior and as your Lord. And lastly, share that truth with as many people as possible. Jesus changed my life, and I want him to forever change yours. And it reminds us of the song we're about to sing, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Can we pray? Father, we thank you that there is only one true gospel. We are grateful, Lord, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Uh, We, this morning, ask you, Lord, to help us know the truth of the gospel and preach it to us, preach it to ourselves daily and remind one another of it, greeting one another um, with God's grace and peace that he offers each one of us. And we just pray, Lord, that, that, that you would receive the worship due your name for, for how good you've been to us. Thank you for your grace, Jesus. Thank you for your peace. Thank you for Christ's sacrificial death on the cross that saved me. Thank you for your love that surrounds me. Father, if there's here someone today who wants to trust in Christ and wants to make this moment the time that they do it, I pray that they can say this. Father, I admit my need for Jesus. I admit that I'm broken. I am separated from a holy God because of my sin, but I believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be in the word, the only way, the only truth, the only life. Uh, Today I make Jesus my savior who forgives my sin, my Lord, the one who I'm going to follow all the days of my life. Thank you, Father, for the truth of the gospel of grace. We pray it all in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.